0: welcome back to this week's episode of a year with the podcast where we explore great ideas from our common history good ideas and bad ones by reading together for a whole year in 2022 we're exploring the harvard classics a world literature anthology published starting in 1909 And for new listeners, please return to the introduction episode. That's from the first week of 2022, so you can understand what our goal is in greater detail, or if you have any questions about what we're doing. This is episode 12, the 12th week, March 19th through March 25th. And we are going back to Herodotus and his tales of Egypt. We're revisiting Voltaire's Letters on the English, this time a particular example of the English in the form of Isaac Newton. We're sampling the second major part of Virgil's Aeneid. We're opening up Goethe's play Faust. We're returning to the Arabian Nights, King Arthur, and Hamlet's suicidal soliloquy from Act 3 of Shakespeare's Hamlet. Let's dive in. On the 19th of March, this day, we're returning to Herodotus the 5th century BC Greek historian that we heard from in week 5. This time we read further from Herodotus's account of Egypt. As we noted back in week 5, his account was, in at many points, fairly accurate, given the standards of the time, But you get a sense that Herodotus was somewhat incredulous. Um, He allowed the unlikely to blend in with the probably true. So, for instance, last time we heard of a king, Mykerinos, who was told by an oracle that he would only live six more years. So he hacked the oracle uh, and turned his six years into 12 years by staying awake all night and day and enjoying the remaining 12 years that he had of life. Here we start off with a little Egyptian theology. Uh, They had different ranks of gods, Pan and seven others at the top, Heracles in tier two, gods like Dionysus in tier three, and so on. Uh, Herodotus also tells us of great pyramids, of, quote, more than human greatness. Some of these are a bit more fabulous than real pyramids that we know about. So, like, for instance, there's a man-made lake with two pyramids in the middle that's a hundred fathoms high. Uh, This would be like 600 feet. So if you've ever been to, say, the... Gateway Arch in St. Louis. The point of that arch is like, I think around 630 feet tall. And we happen to know that the Great Pyramid, for instance, um, was about 480 feet high. So really big, um, not too far off, but there were, there were there really two pyramids in a lake um, that each reached higher than the Great Pyramid of Giza that we do not know about now? Um, you know, I doubt it. But Either way, we see the same theme, the realistic mixed with the fabulous, as Herodotus received much of his information secondhand. On March 20th, we're returning once again to Voltaire's Letters on the English, the famous collection of essays on English people, systems, and customs, based on his observations living there between 1726 and 1729, so as a Frenchman living in England. We've read some of these letters in week six and week eight, and now we continue with two pieces on Sir Isaac Newton, the 17th century English polymath who made contributions to mathematics, astronomy, physics, and theology, and if you look him up, his family coat of arms looked suspiciously like part of a pirate flag. It's a black background with two crossed shin bones. If you missed my previous introductions to Voltaire, so he was a prolific writer of the French Enlightenment and wrote widely on many topics, often with this biting approach that expressed ideas outside the mainstream. The first letter we have today is letter 15 on attraction. He begins by stating his intent to share a few things he's gleaned from Newton, and Newton's often revolutionary understandings which overturned accepted wisdom, and they are celebrated by Voltaire in this spirit. Quote, but in philosophy a student ought to doubt of the things he fancies he understands too easily. As much as of those he does not understand. The first of these ideas is gravity, which begins to answer the question, what impels the movement of the universe? How did he discover this principle? We're given here the story of of Newton's walk in a garden near Cambridge. So he was in solitude because of the plague, and he saw fruits fall from a tree. And we will note that in Voltaire's account, the fruit does not hit him in the head. Uh, this led to a series of studies, which demonstrated that quote the power of gravitation acts proportionably to the quantity of matter in bodies, that gravity's pull increases with greater mass. Um, this is something that's taught in middle school today, but the revolution the revelation is not intuitive, and it opened the door for much of modern science and physics. So, while Newton was the one who said, quote, if I have seen a little further, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, He is certainly himself one of the giants stood upon by theorists and researchers today. Okay, so let's move to the 21st. On the 21st of March, we return once again to Virgil's Aeneid, which has not been on our agenda since the first week. The Aeneid is an epic poem written around 25 BC, and it carries on for the Romans, the Homeric Greek epic poem tradition. So the protagonist, Aeneas, served to demonstrate Roman values of duty and piety when Caesar Augustus was ostensibly trying to recover these values. So again, we're in John Dryden's 1697 English translation. In the previous selection in week one, Aeneas is telling Dido, Dido is the queen of Carthage who would tragically fall in love with him, about the fall of Troy and their escape from the city and Aeneas encountered the ghost of Hector, the slain Trojan warrior. That episode in our week one reading was from the first major section of the poem, where Aeneas is traveling from Troy to his ultimate goal of Latium, or the area around modern Rome. In that first section, there is a stopover in Carthage, which is located in modern Tunisia, the closest African country to Italy across the Mediterranean Sea. Today's selection, though, is from the second major section of the poem, When Aeneas finally arrives in Italy, this sets up the conflict where King Latinus believes that Aeneas has arrived to fulfill a prophecy and marry his daughter Lavinia, but the king's wife prefers a local match, a local man named Turnus, for their daughter. After Turnus and Amata, Amata is the king's wife, stoke a hatred against the exiled Trojans, including Aeneas. A war begins. In Book Eight, where we find ourselves, Aeneas is gathering support from other cities in Latium he is given a vision and a dream to approach the arcadians aeneas and some of his men row up the tiber the tiber river to the humble people of arcadia and they enthusiastically make an alliance meanwhile the gods have an interest in the outcome of this fight as well venus the roman goddess convinces her husband vulcan the god of fire metalworking, and forging to make armor and weaponry for aeneas Venus appears to Aeneas and presents this equipment to him, and the centerpiece was the shield, which was illustrated with what is basically a prophecy of the future of Rome from this point. He, quote, most admires the shield's mysterious mold when he sees it. We see Roman triumphs rising on the gold, the race of divine of warriors issuing from the Julian line, the, uh, the she-wolf who adopted the twins Romulus and Remus, Romulus who would be the mythical founder of Rome. As we see, uh, there by the wolf were laid the martial twins. The fostered dam lulled out her fawning tongue as the twin boy's nurse. We see the abduction of the Sabine women, where the men of Rome went out into the countryside to capture women to be their wives. We see the death of the traitor Medius, who was stretched between four horses and his torn limbs are left the vulture's food. We see the Etruscan Porcita's invasion of Rome and his defeat. We see the Gauls' uh, night attack on Rome, the Battle of Actium, which overlaps with the story of Octavian and Antony and Cleopatra that we read in week seven, as rendered in Dryden's All for Love, and finally the culmination. And remember, the Aeneid was written to demonstrate and bolster Roman values of duty and piety during the reign of Caesar Augustus. We see the climax of Caesar. Quote On the stern in armor bright, here leads the Romans and their gods to flight. His beamy temples shoot their flames afar and o'er his head is hung the Julian star. So thus we see in this shield a microcosm of Roman history as the Romans wished to see it. A little bit of make Rome great again during the reign of Caesar Augustus after a very turbulent time in Roman history. On March 22nd, we have a selection from Johann von Goethe's tragic play Faust, which was published in 1808. We encountered Goethe in the first week through the Italian writer Giuseppe Mazzini's essay where he compared Goethe and Lord Byron as exemplars of their historical period. Now we read a bit of Goethe himself in what is perhaps his most well-regarded text. Goethe, who lived from 1749 to 1832, is probably the most widely recognized writer in German. Um, He was also something of a polymath himself, writing in many different genres of literature as well as scientific texts, and he also engaged in public service. The story itself is based on the German Faust legend. In this legend, Faust is a scholar who is tired and bored, suffering from ennui, and he makes a deal with Mephistopheles, an envoy of the devil, and he trades his eternal soul for great earthly powers. Traditionally, the story would end with Faust going to hell. However, in Goethe's rendition, Faust is saved in the end by God's grace. It's important to note here that Goethe was not a Christian, certainly not in any orthodox sense, but he had a great interest in Christianity. Uh, Dr. Elliot notes in his introduction that Faust was written off and on over a period of about 60 years. So, as he says, quote, during this period, the plans for the structure and the signification of the work inevitably underwent profound modifications. And these have naturally affected the unity of the result. But on the other hand, This long companionship and persistent recurrence to the task from youth to old age have made it, in a unique way, the record of Goethe's personality in all its richness and diversity. The selection here is the opening of the play, uh, though this section is prefaced by a prologue for the theater and a prologue in heaven. Faust sits at a desk and laments his boredom. Echoes of Ecclesiastes and all his vanity can be heard here. Right, I have, alas, philosophy, medicine jurisprudence too, and to my cost theology, with ardent labor studied through. And here I stand with all my lore, poor fool, no wiser than before. And and that he learned that in truth, we in truth can nothing know. And so Faust then gives himself over to magic and spirit divination. Faust summons a spirit, and, and he boldly sees himself as an equal to the spirit. You know, can we consider this a manifestation of the arrogance of a man who believes that he has actually mastered all the world's knowledge so thoroughly that he finds himself bored. Um, but the, the spirit, it pushes back on Faust's arrogance before disappearing. Uh, Faust says, thou restless spirit, dost from end to end or sweep the world, how near I feel to thee. And the spirit responds, thou art like the spirit, thou dost comprehend not me. And he vanishes. Having heard the speaking and declaiming going on in the room, the student, Wagner, enters to see what's up, thinking that Faust is reciting a Greek tragedy or something like that. The dialogue between Faust and Wagner at this point reveals much about the two men. Wagner, a younger man, has this naive conventional hope in the pursuit of knowledge as he closes. With diligence to study, still I fondly cling. Already I know much, but would know everything. Faust's monologue after Wagner's exit Continues in despair, he's been knocked down a peg by the spirit. Quote, Spirit, I dare not lift me to thy sphere. What though my power compelled thee to appear, my art was powerless to detain thee here. And he descends into despair, comparing himself with the earthworm more than a god, surrounded by books filled with rubbish. Suicide enters the mind, and he begins to praise the vial of poison he sees before him as an answer to his troubles. As he raises the vial to drink, he hears a chorus of angels singing as it's Easter morning at this point. Christ is risen, mortal, all hail to thee, thou whom mortality, earth's sad reality, held as in prison. This entrance of hope and redemption into the Faust story changes the direction of the kind of comic farce that the story itself had degenerated into, and places this story in the same class as other great parables like the Book of Job. Though Faust does not start out as righteous and must wait for grace in the end instead of relying on his own virtue like Job does. All right, today on the 23rd, we continue what we started in the first week with the Thousand and One Nights or the Arabian Nights. So, quick refresher the frame story of the Arabian Nights a king Shariar had a bad experience with his wife and an orgy of slaves, so he had her killed. And then, long story short, would marry women and have them beheaded before they could survive the wedding night. After many, many nights of this, the kingdom ran out of marriageable women, and so he was left with the daughter of his vizier, his vizier like a chief minister of the kingdom, and her name was Shahrazad. She hatched a plot to save her head, tell a story each night, but leave it unfinished, so she would be allowed to live another day as the king would want to resolve the cliffhanger. So that was the frame story we heard on the first week, or the story in which another set of stories is placed. This week's reading starts off Shahrazad's stories with the tale of the merchant and the genie. Uh, there was a merchant who was trading in another country, and he pulled a date from his provisions, like a fruit. He ate it, and he tossed the pit away. An efreet, or a type of demon, appeared and claimed that the thrown pit killed his son. The efreet pledged to kill the merchant in retribution, but the merchant asked for a one-year reprieve to settle his affairs which he was granted. True to his word, the merchant resisted the tears of his family and friends and returned to the garden where he would find the Efreet, so he could be killed. Having arrived there, uh, he met three sheikhs, a sheikh being a term for a man of honor or authority. Each sheikh had an animal or animals, a gazelle, two black hounds, and a mule, respectively. Each sheikh bargained with the Efreet, and basically, it was, I will trade you the story of my animal for a third of this man's life, of the merchant's life, right? So each man told his story. The first sheikh's gazelle was his niece, and the second sheikh's two black dogs were his brothers, and each transformed. And by this means, the sheikhs bargained back the merchant's life, and Shahrazad lived three more days just telling out this story. What's great here is that Shahrazad spared her life with the king by stringing him along in these three stories without coming to the realization that this is precisely what the sheikhs in the story were doing to the Efreet. In his uh, enthusiasm and desire for the resolution of an unfinished story, he doesn't realize that he's being duped in the same way that the Efreet is being misled in the story. Very sneaky. All right, on the 24th, we have a selection of poetry, The Defense of Guinevere, Um, written by William Morris, the 19th century designer, writer, and socialist. It's written in tercets or stanzas, of three lines each, with a rhyme at the end of the first and third lines. As you can guess by the name Guinevere, Morris writes in the same Arthurian tradition, that is, the tales of King Arthur and his knights, that the late medieval Sir Thomas Mallory worked in. The narrative of this poem... Uh, In the narrative of this poem, Queen Guinevere, the wife of King Arthur has been caught cheating with the knight Lancelot and is found here at the stake, right at the outset, preparing to be burned. She is accused by what she calls the lie of Gawain, another knight, and her emotional defense at the stake does not entirely exonerate her of cheating. Is it justified because she and Arthur were never truly in love and that she is in love with the blissful Lancelot? Was it not cheating because it was just a kiss? Is it inappropriate to accuse and handle her like this because it is below the dignity of a lady and a queen? We can't really tell. Um, as she carries on and on, defending herself, we hear a horse galloping up, and in a quatrain stanza, the poem ends. Quote, at last, hear something really joyfully. Her cheek grew crimson as the headlong speed of the roan charger drew all men to see the knight who came was Lancelot at good need. Guinevere stalled long enough for Lancelot to arrive and rescue her. Is it true? Was it a plot? We still don't know. We can see, however, the longevity and the flexibility of these King Arthur tales, Um, however, that they continue being told, repeated, reworked in different contexts and genres, building layers of references and character development. Um, In this situation, making a woman who is complex, yet strong and bold in defense of herself and her interests. To close out our week, Shakespeare's Hamlet. It's one of the most well-known, well-regarded, and widely performed pieces in English literature, so there's no wonder it gets a lot of play in the Harvard Classics collection. The last time we read from Hamlet, in week five, we were in a side story where Laertes, the son of the royal advisor Polonius, gave advice to his sister Ophelia not to get involved with Hamlet, and then Polonius gave advice to his son Laertes since he was embarking on his educational journey to France. Those early passages in the play provide many memorable, quotable lines that are easily recognized. Today, we have another recognizable passage, this time from Act 3, Scene 1. This is Hamlet's soliloquy, where he contemplates suicide. Recall that at this point, Prince Hamlet of Denmark, who was heir to the throne, was thwarted from accession to the throne when his father, King Hamlet, died. Uh, And then when King Hamlet's brother, Claudius, married... Queen Gertrude, and so then he became king instead. Hamlet was visited by a ghost at the end of Act 1 who disclosed his identity as the elder King Hamlet. And King Hamlet, the father, told Prince Hamlet that he was murdered by Claudius in his ambition for the throne. The ghost asks Hamlet to avenge his death by killing King Claudius. At this point, Hamlet commits to feign madness in order to best position himself or revenge, King Claudius' advisor Polonius works to uncover the reason for this madness and bizarre behavior so he can report to Claudius. Polonius at first believes the reason is Hamlet's love for Polonius' daughter Ophelia, but the soliloquy here puts that theory to rest. The soliloquy here in Act 3 begins with a meditation on suicide. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune Or to take arms against a sea of troubles, and, by opposing, end them. To die, to sleep, no more. And by a sleep, to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished. To die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream. Ay, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. So, why not die? It's our cowardice, our fear of what might come. The undiscovered country from whose born, no traveler returns. As Hamlet reflects here, Ophelia comes. In their conversation, they discuss the love that Hamlet may have had for Ophelia before. And Ophelia chides him. My lord, you made me believe so. And in his dark space, Hamlet responds, You should not have believed me, for virtue cannot so inoculate our old stock, but we shall relish of it. I loved you not. And he continues, Get thee to a nunnery. Why wouldst thou be a breeder of sinners? Go to a convent! Whether this is feigned madness or false rejection or not, Polonius' question is answered. From wherever this madness comes, its source is not love. What's more remarkable here is the beauty and authenticity of the reflections here. We have a man Um, reputedly driving himself mad by indecision and uncertainty, having some of the most universal human thoughts and experiences in the context of a life situation that's unimaginable to most of us. Um, None of us have had our throne usurped or been visited by the ghost of our father, asking us for revenge, but we've all wondered whether it's better to be or not to be, and what is the source of our cowardice, and we've wondered why our love that once seemed so real now seems false, and what that reflects about our character. So maybe Hamlet stays there a little longer, but we can see a mirror of ourselves in this fantastical situation. Okay, everyone, on that relatively high note, I'll bring this week's episode to a close. I'll see you next week where we'll touch on the making of pins with Adam Smith and death masks with John Dunn. Thank you so much for spending this time with me. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, you can email me at zach.garrettoutlook.com z-a-c-h dot at outlook.com thank you and see you next week